This is the Tom Baker Show. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Tom Baker Show. I am your host, Tom Baker, and it is great to be back in the comfy chair for another episode. And we've got an interesting feature guest this week. We're actually going to spend a little bit of time talking to Graham Smith, who is the vice president of business operations for U.S. Legends International. If you're not familiar with legend cars, you should be. Here in the U.S., the legend cars, although there are a ton of them who compete all through the week and weekend at tracks all over the United States, they're not necessarily considered a featured division. But this is a worldwide division of race cars, legends especially, bandoleros a little bit, but legends especially, they're spec cars, both legends and bandoleros, they are all built at the same headquarters in Harrisburg, North Carolina, just about uh, 45 minutes from where I'm sitting. And Graham Smith's going to join us. Now, Graham is the grandson of Bruton Smith, who started Speedway Motorsports International, as in Charlotte Motor Speedway, Texas Motor Speedway, et cetera, et cetera. And also, of course, the Performance Racing Network and uh, Speedway Children's Charities and so that makes Graham the son of Marcus Smith, who is the son of Bruton. <laughs> Graham is the VP of Business Operations at uh, U.S. Legends International and is really, he's got a lot on his plate right now. And I spoke with Graham about um, sort of the history of the Legends cars, what's going on today, including the cookout summer shootout, which is happening here at Charlotte Motor Speedway, uh, just started with the first two rounds this past week. And we talked about where he liked to see Legends cars go. And oh my, um, I don't know if we broke some news, but he certainly gave us something to think about. So if uh, uh, you're going to want to stick around for that whole interview, because it was uh, quite interesting. Okay. We've also, of course, in our warm up, we're going to talk Indy and F1 because those were the two big events that went on this weekend. NASCAR was off for the weekend. All three series will be back in action at Nashville next week. NBC takes over the coverage for the remainder of the season. And the hot topic also involves F1 and the women's series or the W series. It shut down final checkered flag this weekend. Should, here's the question, should F1 and or the FIA have stepped in to save it? And I'll have my, Two cents on that in just a little bit. Let's start with a warm-up, shall we? Let's go to IndyCar first. They were at Road America, Elkhart Lake, Wisconsin. Four-mile road course, the Sun Theo Grand Prix, and oh, was this ever a race. Alex Pillow and Colton Herta pretty much had it their own way. Pillow ended up winning, but boy, there were over 400 on-track passes in this one. It was a spectacular race. It always is with the IndyCar Skoda Road America. Polo getting the win, his third win in a row in the IndyCar Series. Joseph Newgarden finished second. Pato Award was third. Scott Dixon fourth. And Colton Herta fifth. Herta not happy with his P5, by the way, because had to really conserve fuel at the end of the race, which means slow down. And he really felt like he could have had um, at least a second-place car, and he should have. Um, Pillow with – this is what blows my mind here. Listen to this. Alex Pillow at this point in the season, has a 74-point lead in the IndyCar Championship standings over his teammate Marcus Erickson. Now, keep your eye out for more news on Marcus as we get uh, into the season as well because it came out this week that he and Chip Ganassi racing – are very far apart on his contract going forward after the season. Right now, Erickson is not a paid racer. He is bringing sponsor dollars from, of course, Husky in order to make his salary. And so he feels like he should be paid by the team 
And he, so he wants to be a paid driver. The team is still wanting him to keep bring, bringing sponsorship. And so right now there, there's a stalemate that's, um, about a mile wide. So, uh, we'll see where that goes as we go forward into the season. But Alex Pelot, number three, picks up the hat trick, hockey hat trick, three in a row, um, in the IndyCar series. We'll move to F1 now, the Canadian Grand Prix. This is always a good race. Now, we knew who was going to win before it started, right? And, and, and this is really my opinion of this, and, and I'm surely not alone, is that Red Bull's going to sweep the entire season. I don't see Red Bull losing a race the entire season in F1 unless they both break. Max Verstappen, his sixth win in eight races this year. It was Red Bull's 100th win across 18 years of competition in the F1 series. But here was the story. Fernando Alonso finishing second, beating out Lewis Hamilton, Charles Leclerc, and, uh, of course, Sainz finishing fifth. Um, Aston Martin really showing some muscle, and especially Fernando. Incredible to see him do what he did. He basically said he had to run about 70 qualifying laps um which translates into 70 holy crap laps in order to uh to beat hamilton this is going to be the story going forward and then into 2024 because right now red bull obviously has the hot setup it isn't that everybody else forgot how to drive the red bulls are just that much better now what will happen between this year and next who knows there was some conversation about, is there anything that can be done this year to slow the Red Bulls down? Nobody, nobody except all the com- competing teams wants that, so that probably won't happen. Um, so this is going to be a long year for everybody else and, and perhaps a record-breaking year for Red Bull. But um, Alonzo with a fantastic run to finish in second. Now, this is where this I said there's similarities between the IndyCar and the F1 race. Here's where it is. In IndyCar, Alex Pelot has a 74-point lead at this point in the championship standings. Well, Max Verstappen, F1's a little closer than that, believe it or not. 69-point lead for Max Verstappen, but it's over his teammate, Sergio Perez. So F1 and IndyCar both, right now the championship standings, a clearly dominant racer. Um, the only difference is I have less confidence that Alex Pelot is going to actually run the table throughout the rest of the IndyCar season than I do that Max Verstappen could run the table in F1. Now, again, you know, there will be some twists and turns here because think about the fact that we've got a, a race in Vegas later this year in F1. Nobody's ever raced on that circuit. So that one could be a wild card. But as far as the rest of it, I honestly don't see Red Bull losing. I just can't imagine a scenario unless they just completely miss the setup or both cars break or end up in crashes. And from what I've seen right now um, over the last couple of races, especially with Verstappen, we're seeing just a little bit of a maturation here. He knows he's got a big enough lead, so he's... He's not so much hanging things out um, the way that that he was even in the first couple of races of this year, first few races of this year, where he still wants to have fast lap and all of that. He's he's really just he's he's kind of pacing himself just a little bit less um, off the charts and still uh, getting the wins. Incredible for Red Bull and Max Verstappen. I was actually at a short track this weekend at the Hickory Motor Speedway. And I have to tell you, 75 laps for the NASCAR late model stocks. And uh, the week before, 111 laps for the NASCAR late model stocks. And nary a caution between them. I think we had one on Saturday night in the 75 lapper. Um, just great to see the late models putting on that kind of racing. Now there were only about nine of them on Saturday at the Hickory motor speedway, but, um, it, Kay Brown ended up getting the win. Mike Bumgarner finished in second and Michael was the fastest car 
Uh, what stopped him basically was his own decision to wait a little bit late, probably to make the move um, to sort of turn on the afterburners and go chase down Cade Brown, who was out front. But Bumgarner finished in second. Good run for him. Uh, Tyler Matthews, who won the week before in the uh, Jack Ingram Memorial 111 that went caution free. He finished up in third um, and Hickory Motor Speedway not running the NASCAR regular racing schedule this weekend. They've got a uh, special family event there. So they are off all of the, the late models and the street stocks and all of that are off for the week. And they will return in two weeks time to uh, get back to summertime racing at Hickory Motor Speedway and at the Oswego Speedway, the super modifieds continuing their season. If you've never seen a super modified race, go to flow racing this, this coming Saturday night and dial up Oswego Speedway, O S W E G O Oswego Speedway, or go check out their website, oswegospeedway.com. The super modifieds are absolutely the most exotic and fastest short track cars on the planet. And they compete weekly at the Oswego Speedway and Oswego, Dave Danzer, picking up the win last week there, an emotional win for him. Uh, that team has lost two very uh, close people to them over the last uh, couple of months here. So been a very rough spring for the Danzer slash Sharky family. Dave Danzer uh, making good on that and getting a very emotional win for Mike Murphy and Ron Sharkey, both of whom passed away. Uh, earlier in the spring and uh, it was a great win for Dave in the super modifieds Kyle Perry picking up the win his first ever in the 350 super modifieds and in the SBS division Jesse Barrett went from 11th to first to pick up uh, a win in kind of a wild SBS race but a well-driven one Jesse's two for two in the two races he's run so far in that division at Oswego Speedway, Garrett Zacharias made a move that made my hair stand on end, and I don't have much left to do that uh, to win the super stock portion of the show. Just absolutely amazing. That kid has so much talent. Um, this coming Saturday at the Oswego Speedway, uh, all three divisions in action, and we did have uh, super modified racing as well uh, this past weekend down in Ohio at Lorraine Speedway, which has been nicely revitalized. And three winners there we had on Friday night. It was Mike McVetta getting the um, kind of warm-up feature uh, win on Friday, the 40-lapper for the ISMA and MSS Tours. And then on Saturday, um, the big win went to Talon Stevens, who ended up picking up the win in a car that he's only owned for about a week. Uh, he had totaled the car at the Oswego Speedway a few weeks ago, bought a different car, brought it out, pick up, picked up a win. So good good on tailing to uh, get back in victory lane so quickly after misfortune struck at Oswego, and he ended up hitting the wall really hard and totaling his super modified. So those that is the warm-up session for this week next week we're going to have all kinds of nascar to talk about uh we've got all three divisions in action they are all running at the nashville super speedway the trucks the xfinity series and the cup series and as i noted earlier it will be nbc's return to coverage for the nascar second half of the season and so that should be a lot of fun and so keep your eye out for NBC's coverage. Don't turn to Fox. There won't be an NASCAR race on Fox uh, for the rest of the year. It's time now for our featured guest here on the Tom Baker Show. And we are delighted to have Graham Smith with us this week to talk about uh, Legends cars. But we kind of want to talk about in a big picture sense as well, the business of motorsports, because um, although I'm sure a lot of you think about Legends cars as, oh, those cars that the kids start in, um, this is actually quite a big 
Motorsports Enterprise when it comes to building cars and uh, distributing. It's a worldwide enterprise, and we have Graham Smith with us, who is the Vice President of Business Operations for U.S. Legends Cars. And, uh, Graham, I know that uh, you've got a really busy day today. Thanks for taking some time to jump on with us and talk with us here. And uh, first of all, uh, I've had a chance to attend the first two rounds of this year's cookout summer shootout at charlotte motor speedway which is arguably i think uh at least the most well known of all of the racing series that the legends have and the bandoleros across the u.s um talk a little bit from your perspective about uh, the first two rounds and how things have gone so far yeah thank you for having me on tom and uh thank you for your time today yes yeah, sure. sure. the first two rounds are underway and uh we've got a uh, lot of cars out there. We've got a we've got a very large car not actually bigger than last year's opening night. So uh, we always like to improve. I've seen it since COVID. Even we've we've steadily improved our numbers going into summer shootouts. So I'm very excited to announce we've actually, I believe we were right around 150 something cars that first night. So that's a lot for us for summer shootout, which is great. Um, yeah, it's it, same. All of our events it's the first uh, recurring series event that we ever had as a company the company was founded in 92 and summer shootout started in 93 so this is actually the 30th anniversary of uh of summer shootout at trail Motor speedway um so you'd be on the lookout for some cool announcements from our social team they're gonna put out some fun things regarding the 30th but yeah i'm very happy with how it's gone so far we've had a lot of people out there obviously a little time to to shake out the the rust and the dust for some of the guys that wait all year for this event and a good time for able to continue driving for those that have already started off their year and their season so far yeah it's it it really has been an interesting first couple races a lot of great racing um obviously some some wild crashes as well uh but that's that's the quarter mile and cars being in close proximity uh when somebody in the middle of the pack gets sideways or whatever it's just hard to uh hard to avoid that but um really seen an increase like you said the car count good to see b mains back at the shootout haven't seen that for a while is that is that sort of indicative of an overall growth in uh legends and bandolero participation do you think or is that just kind of something that's uh more or less isolated to the shootout because it's it's probably the most well-known series no, I, I would actually I go with your first your uh, your first note there. It, it is uh, we've seen a massive increase across the entire country in all of our events with car counts, and it, I do nice. credit a lot of that just nice. to the the overall uh, surge of racing in the U.S. has been. Uh, we've gotten uh, racing is popular again. You know, there was a there's a time where NASCAR was the biggest thing that you that U.S. had as far as spectator sports, and we're we're trending back that way as a as a country at both in NASCAR, F1, IMSA, IndyCar. Everything is is popular now, which is a great reason to get into a race car, which is what we see uh, happening right now across the board. So U.S. Legends is a, an, I mean, when people hear U.S. Legends, it's sort of a misnomer in one way, and that is that um, Legends cars, and I'm not sure about Bandoleros, you can you can tell me better on that, but I know at least the Legends cars, That's a it's a worldwide sport. You've got cars going all over the world. Can you share a little bit about that and, you know, the number of cars that you ship across the world each year? Tell us a little bit about the international part of this, because I'm sure that's something that a lot of people don't realize. It's really big, even outside of the U.S., Absolutely. Yes, we are very proud of our international presence. It is predominantly on the legend car side. I believe we have a couple of bandoleros outside of the country, but mostly legend cars. Okay. And actually, at this point, we're actually reporting about half of our car sales now are outside of the U.S. Which wow. Is, it's, it's something it's shocked me as well when I first heard that. It was a couple months ago that, that I was told that number. Um, I believe we are 52 percent uh, domestic and 48 percent international now for legend car sales. Um, that's across 40 states, uh, at least with dealers in them in the U.S., and 30 different countries now. Uh, we've, uh, we've crested over the 30 number this, this year with uh, the addition of a Spain and Portugal market. So, um, yes, we're all over the place, predominantly Europe, but a lot of stuff going on in Asia and, um, and South America. We have stuff in, uh, in Canada as well. It's great. So we're, we're very proud of that presence, and we love when those – when those drivers get to come visit us, we've got a lot of Canadians with us right now for summer shootout. We usually have a big international presence at our road course world finals at the end of the year. And uh, I'm excited to get to see all of our international customers. 
Yeah, for sure. Uh, what what countries do you know? Which countries are sort of the biggest outside of the U.S. for Legends Car Racing? We've got a very strong presence in Canada. I would say um, in Europe, you know, our Italian dealers is fantastic. We have a great relationship with them. We have wow. great relationships across uh, Italy. I'd say uh, England has started to beef up their production. Uh, uh, France actually has placed two massive car orders this year and uh, is trying to reignite their program. Uh, in England, I believe they're working to get Legend Cars in as a support series for the British Touring Car Championship, which oh, is wow. essentially their version of IMSA for those that don't know. So yeah. That's, that's a very, very big deal for us. We're very proud about that. That's really interesting. Now, how are you able to, uh, because across the sport, obviously, over the last couple of years, especially, you know, one of the, the, the downsides that racing has seen is um, basically the same sort of microcosm of what everybody in business is seeing. And that is uh, obviously supply chain and things like that. And as you know, I walk through the garage at the shootout, you hear folks talk about, um, you know, tire shortages, lack of shock uh, availability for some of the new shocks that you've um, that you guys have put in for the year. Um, And obviously that's not a U.S. Legends car thing exclusively. That's all across the board. But how with worldwide distribution, I'm curious, how do you sort of manage that? And um, what does all that look like for you? Yeah, it's, uh, you know, we've, we obviously saw the same things that everybody else saw during COVID. And uh, it was weird during COVID itself, our suppliers didn't see, seem to have as many issues. It was after COVID when the supply shortages really started to hit us. Yeah. And um, racing really didn't take a break during COVID. So it was, uh, it was interesting because you could social distance very perfectly being inside a race car. You're, you'd like to not yeah. be six feet next to the person uh, next to you. So, uh, we we had a lot of fun during COVID. Had a lot of time that we got to spend at the track and and still provide a very safe environment. And now we've uh, we've you know faced some of those challenges that everybody else faces. But I can tell you that things are trending on the upside. Um, you know you will hear just like if I was a racer and when I used to race, I can tell you that I'm only focused on my race car right. and my team. And I can tell you that if I don't have tires or if I don't have shocks, all I can think about is I can't get them and I'm upset. I can tell all these competitors and I tell them every time that I'm asked the question, we are working on it. It is getting better. The trend is going forward, not backward. We're, we're moving out of a state of, uh, of pandemonium and into a state where we're actually able to supply uh, very well our competitors across the country. As of, as of this moment, it's more of a, a strategy-based uh, discussion on how we distribute to make sure that all these dealers across the country, some of which haven't seen tires in quite some time yeah. due to their low volume of racing, we're trying to push tires to those communities that haven't seen them in a while. And that's why you might hear some things around Charlotte, which is a market that really was very well serviced all the way through COVID compared to the other markets. So now we're really trying to share the love, make sure that we get tires to everybody that can get them, et cetera. I'm just using tires as an example, sure. but yeah. there's a lot of different parts that we need to get out to people. And we're very focused on that at this moment. That's got to be a, a, a headache of massive proportions in some ways for you, because as you say, everything gets sort of exaggerated and every racer is kind of looking at their own supply a little bit. Um, but you're sort of the the catch all. Right. Everybody comes to, to, to you and, and uh, wants to, you know, wants to know what's going on. And, and I'm sure that's a, a really big part of your uh, your daily duties right now is just to try to figure out how to manage all of that because it's got to be tough, especially with as big um, of a distribution base as you have. How many cars, Legends cars on average, get built each year? We're we're cresting near the 300 car a year mark. Uh, we We put out 277 cars last year, and this year we've set a goal to sell 300 cars. That's wow. uh, that's going to be back in back in the kind of mid 2010s that was kind of a good number for us to shoot for now just because we have so many cars out there and they are so easy to repair and very rarely need to be fully replaced we're actually trying to sell to new customers for a long time we've been kind of relying on our customer base but now we've got all these new cars going out so yeah it's a big part of our business making sure that we get parts distributed and and um and you know 300 cars is a lot of cars but i'm confident we can make it happen that's interesting, Graham, because I really hadn't thought about it until you just said it. But, as, you know, I've I've been around the legends for probably 20 years now or close. And um, it, it seems like 
in some ways, the cars themselves, as far as the chassis go, um, really haven't changed all that much. I'm sure there have been small things over the years as technology develops or whatever, but um, it does bring up an interesting point. How do you keep the older cars competitive with the newer cars because it seems like a lot of the components have changed the the motors changed uh, not too long ago you got different tires now more shocks this year a lot of things are changing within the cars but it seems like how do you keep the cars themselves fairly competitive with each other yes we so unlike a lot of uh, a lot of traditional car makers where your your whole idea is to make massive improvements so that you can get you can sell to sell again. That's one yeah. of the thing my grandfather always said. It was it was you sell it once and then you got to make it better the next time so you can sell it again. For us, you know, we still want to sell cars. We're not we're not trying to you know sell you one car and then never have you buy another one from us ever again. But we also don't want you to have to purchase to compete. We're, there was never really a pay to play in mind when legend cars were were talked about right. in the beginning, and we wanted to keep that vision alive. So when we do R and D testing, instead of purely focusing on how the car can be faster. We also focus on how it can compete with current model cars. So when we develop a new part, a lot of times what we'll do is we'll take a car out there that has a rebuilt motor, nothing, not some, not a new brand new car, a car that has some miles on it, some races on it, and we'll take it out there and compare. And we really don't want to outshine that car because that car presents the majority of our field as a car with a rebuilt motor, a car that's had some work done to it, it's had some races on it. And we try to be just a little bit better, but not anywhere near a point where you are guaranteed to win a race with a new car. The whole idea is to make small improvements over the years, improve the car, but also keep it competitive across the board from all of our timelines. Yeah, that's a really interesting uh, philosophy. And um, I want to go back. This is a, a great point uh, to jump off from to go backwards and talk about the the origin of the Legends car. And I think that started with your grandfather and Humpy Wheeler, did it not? In in trying it to, did. I, I heard the, the, the story I heard, and I don't know if it's true, is that they were kind of looking at like a bass boat sort of idea of let's make a $10,000 race car that you can throw in the back of a pickup, take to the racetrack and run for wins. Is that kind of how it went? Absolutely. Yeah, they, they looked out. It was a conversation and the way that it has been relayed to me um, and Humpy and Bruton both were expert storytellers. Yeah, you have to very, Humpy still listen is. very carefully. <laughs> oh, yes. Yes. I still listen to Humpy's story. Oh, I, yes. I get to talk to Humpy. I'm, I'm blessed to be able to continue to talk to Humpy and ask him for advice, which he freely gives. Oh, yes. Um, but they, uh, they, the way they tell the story is they were talking and they were looking out over the campgrounds and they saw a bunch of trailer hitches and a bunch of trailers for boats. And they realized that if a race fan could afford to buy tickets and also buy a bass boat, then there's no reason why we couldn't build a car for the same price and then get people racing and bring the fans closer to racing. If you, you know, it's one thing if you want to watch golf on television, once you go out and play, a lot of people will tell now some people will tell you it's the worst thing in the world. And I totally understand that. But a lot of people go out there and they play and they go, man, I'm kind of addicted to this. Then you watch more golf. So we got people behind the wheel, got people to experience racing, then down the line those people become lifelong fans and a lot of the people that race these cars are still at the races on sunday it's actually my all-time favorite thing is to be at a race on sunday walking around with dad or doing whatever i'm doing and and be able to see like some kids from the legend program yeah. out there and they'll call they'll, they'll yell out to me and i'll go over there and talk to them I, I love it it's it's one of my favorite parts about race weekends well and you've had obviously you have a lot of situations where you know you'll have a, a race weekend at one of your tracks where you know on thursday night or whatever there'll be a legends racer at some point in the weekend so that that, that crowd that's there for the NASCAR race or whatever it might be kind of gets to um, check out the legends cars and, and those young racers. Um, and even obviously those not so young who are competing in the legends cars. Cause you have um, basically yes. almost uh, seven to 77 between the bandos and the legends at this point, um, you know, they get to race in front of a big crowd, which is really a cool deal for them. Yes. We love doing that. Ken Reagan actually is, is very good at running that program down in Atlanta on a race weekend we're uh we always have fun going down there and uh and doing that we've actually started doing it at more of our tracks and yeah. i've been uh fortunate enough to work with ben kennedy and uh and chip Weil over at nascar and talk to them about how we can do more of that at tracks even non-smi tracks and try and spread the legend car word across the country and and get more of those those racers a chance to compete in front of a crowd like they used to Okay, so I think that uh, a lot of people have come to think of Bandos and Legends as 
a stepping stone, which of course it is for any number of young drivers. There have been probably 40 or 50 at least that have made it to the top three levels of NASCAR over the years, probably more than that. But um, at the same time, I think originally it feels like when, you know, your grandpa and Humby created this, they were really creating it more for some of the folks like myself who might jump in at the semi-pro or master's level and just do it for the enjoyment and the fun of doing it at a reasonable cost. Um, what's the balance there for you in terms of, cause that's essentially almost two different markets. How do you sort of balance the idea of keeping the, legends car is affordable for you know somebody who just wants to go like you said throw it in the back of the pickup have a good time but still be competitive and at the same time kind of accommodate some of these um arrive and drive teams that you know have big tents with a bunch of cars that they maintain for people who rent them for their kids who are trying to use the legends as a step up i i think this is an awesome question because this is one of the things i've been focused on a lot recently has been focusing you know we we've the car itself kind of created its own development characteristics you yeah know, the kids the kids that came into the program when the, the age of legend car as it, over time has come down in age uh, age limits and um we've just found that we we've got some really talented young people that can drive the car and the car is very safe so it became something that turned into a development tool because you've got a high power to weight ratio you've got a lightweight car that's very tricky to drive and very yeah. tricky to get around corners but there's also the enthusiast that wants to come out and have fun. And it's funny because I actually raced legend cars when I was a kid thinking that maybe one day I'd want to go race professionally oh. and it ended up not working out for me. I, I didn't, I, I ended up having different dreams and uh, I went on to play team sports, but then I came back to the company. Um, actually the first, the first reason I started going back to legends was not even working there. I was talking about building a car. I wanted to go out there and have fun and a legend car seemed like the great way to do it without having to break the bank. And it kind of got me thinking now, as I've been in the job for a little while now, you know, we need to, you know, look more into these enthusiast markets, which is why we're doing some of these things where we go on Jay Leno's garage and, and talk to car and driver and I try and get that. into the heads of people. It was a lot of fun. That was that was a great, great experience. But it's it's one of those type of things that we're, we're trying to get in front of people that work on their own cars, people that are in their garage on the weekends instead of on the golf course, people that want to go out and, you know, and have fun with the car. So that's me now. And when I was a kid, I was on the development track, so I kind of get to see both sides of it. And um, and I'm happy to to say we're we're trying to make some moves to make this car as as fun to drive as it possibly can be. And um, you know, for someone like me that I'm not even trying to be all that competitive, I just want to go out there and make laps. This is a great car for that, and uh, we're trying to continue to make it better for that. Yeah, that's what I because I I look at um, I mean when I first came here to Charlotte, it wasn't long after that that that. Um, I started paying attention to, you know, the legends and I had a couple of drivers I was working with that were competing in them um, that were younger. But then I'd watch the master's class. And just to tell a quick story for everybody and how why I asked that question, there was a gentleman who was racing in the master's class at that time. His name was Will Cagle. Now, Will Cagle, for those um, in our Northeast audience, they will know exactly who Wiley Will Kegel was. When I was younger in the 70s, first going to dirt tracks up in the Northeast, Will Kegel was a legend. And next thing I know, I'm down here in Charlotte in, in, the, in the earlier 2000s, 06, 07, 08, and here's Will Kegel, the same guy who dominated dirt modified racing in the Northeast for all those years. Here's Will Kegel running in the master's class at the summer shootout and having a great time doing it in his 70s. And that's, that's I sort of look at Legends cars and think, wow, if, if, you know, if we could only develop that as here's your your way basically it's a, it's it's a bigger go-kart it's a it's a car that you can have it doesn't take a ton of maintenance it's a spec car and i look at the semi-pro and the masters classes and i love watching those guys because those are the folks that are kind of going to be around longer term right graham absolutely yes and we we are very proud of when our when our graduates as i like to call them go on to race in late models and then eventually make their way to trucks and Xfinity yeah. and cup but it is just as fun to know that I'm going to see the same people that I see every single year at Summer Shootout out there in semi-pro and master yep. and get to hang out with them. Those are probably some of my favorite people to talk to. It's great because I get to glean some advice from them because they've been around the car for a while. 
And um, yeah, they're they're just people that think like I do. They love cars, they love going fast, and they want to have fun doing it. Okay, so um, let's talk a little bit about what you envision going forward into the future. What have you? What are your thoughts on where you'd like to see? the legends and the bandolero division say in three to five years, because I know that I believe one of the things that changed this year is I've heard now that the entry age for legends has dropped a little bit. Um, and, and so I guess I'll ask two questions. One, if that's true, how is that affecting the balance between the upper level bando classes and the, and the young lions legends class? If, and, and then secondarily, you know, how does that play into your future vision of where you'd like to see these, these cars positioned in the motorsports world in the next few years? Yes, we did. We did lower the age and I, and I actually think um, it's helped out a lot. The, the biggest thing that it does to affect the split between bandoleros and legends i'd say is the bandolero is is the number one value car that we make and i would say it's probably one of the best value race cars for kids that you can buy now i've all i've already seen some people that are my age that i mean i'm a i'm on the taller side so i can't really still fit in a bando but the people <laughs> that are my age they're still have fun in a bandolero really and the idea for that oh yes i've seen some people running around uh summer shootout funny enough that were racing the outlaws division and they were in bandoleros in their 20s and oh, wow. they're just a little on the yeah they, they're able to fit in the car you might as well still drive it they're really fun to drive um i think that that'll still be our highest value car for anybody who's looking to get a taste of racing you know it's it's an it's at seven thousand dollars you're making a very low commitment to get into racing probably the lowest commitment you can make um outside of like a really really low-end cart is that turnkey so, yeah, graham seven thousand 7,000 turnkey wow. out the door is uh, 65,990 or 69,995.: Wow. Am I doing that right? 6995. Yeah. There you go. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's how many numbers there are. <laughs> yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, it's, it's, that'll always have its place. And the, kind of the motivation for lowering the age was we just found that you know, a lot of these late models and different programs, 600 micros, a lot of things you can get in, we're, we're doing similar speeds to a legend car and allowing younger competitors. So we decided, you know, we have a car that we're very proud of the safety aspect of it, and that's actually where we find a lot of our of the parents that come to us with their kids out of karting or out of the dirt world. They're yeah. looking for something a little bit more on the stable side of things. And, yeah, you did see some crazy uh, wrecks at Summer Shootout, but I'll tell you that it's amazing what those cars can go through and watching people get out and walk away, probably a little upset about their night, but at least they're walking away and not going to the hospital. Absolutely. Where some of these wrecks you see in these, you know, different cars that, get made in a garage somewhere it's, it's you just don't know the safety aspect of it so we're very proud of that safety and we figured that we can we can make a car that's safe enough for a 12 year old it's more than likely safe safe enough for a 10 year old we like to monitor these kids and make sure that they are they're comfortable in the car we offer a lot of help to those parents of younger kids as they're learning how to drive there's a lot of good those teams that you talk about that have their arriving drives a lot of them also do a lot of coaching some really good coaching and um, those those teams are very uh, integral into helping these kids get adapted to that car. Yeah, I was going to ask that question because I know from working with drivers that sometimes there's a pretty big difference mentally and and if obviously physically as well between a 10 year old and even a 13 or 14 year old. So how do you sort of bridge that gap um, and and, you know, make the 10 year old able to sort of be comfortable racing with the 13 and 14 year olds that or 12 year olds whatever that are in young lions for example instead of creating i think there are some people who wonder why you didn't create another class for the 10 year olds and i'm not sure that's i don't know what the answer is so i'm i'm curious what your perspective on that is so my perspective comes from one night in atlanta and i'm gonna have to shout out ken reagan again so ken if you're listening to this I Ken's awesome. Beer. um he's the man he is awesome. uh I went, I went to go to a uh, – it was a support race for the Cup Series race. It was after the Xfinity race on Saturday night. Okay. This was, I believe, last year or the year before. And I watched – Ken does this deal where when he does that NASCAR weekend event, the I think it's like the top five from each division gets together, and they run an all-star race is what he calls it. So they run all of their normal races, and the top five finishers from each class get together. I think it's top five, maybe top three. And they put them all on a line. And they race. And the best race of the night was the one where you had a mix of masters, pros, semi-pros, and young lines. It was by far the cleanest race, the best tight racing, and had the closest finish out of all of them. And I kind of thought about that. And really the way that I look at it is if I'm 10 years old, like 
when I was 10, if I saw an older guy in a car, like I'm, I know that I'm not going to run into him. It's not going to be the same as if my buddy, like my, one of my best friends is in the car next to me. I'm absolutely putting him in the wall. And then you can ask my former teammate from racing, Scott Joy, he'll tell you we had no problem. Putting him in the wall. But when you see somebody that's older than you, that has more experience, there's a respect there. And at the same time, when you've got some age on a kid, you don't really want to rough the kid up. So I think there's a mutual respect and the age difference that actually breeds some really good racing and a great learning opportunity for our, for our younger drivers to see somebody who has more experience drive the car better than them and learn what to do better. And, um, you know, we've seen a lot of success in that. And I thank Ken for putting that program together because it really shows how that, how that plays out for everybody. That is interesting. It's an interesting uh, point of view for sure. And, uh, and I totally understand where you're coming from on that. Um, how that brings me to the aggression level. Cause you did mention like, I, you know, you have no problem putting your money in the wall and you do see a lot of, you know, bumper action in, in these cars, yes. especially <laughs> like the Chicago. Where do you kind of feel like the line needs to get drawn because it 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 seems like it can be a fine line between going in and just sort of learning to nudge the guy up in front of you so you can get under him and pass him versus going in and just kind of you know knocking him out of the way where where does the where you feel like the line should be drawn there um and and how do you kind of enforce that in the course of a an event like the shootout yeah, so we, we're very proud of our race director uh, at the shootout, and he travels with us, uh, Kyle McGowan, who's also our sales manager, funny enough, at Legends. Oh, nice. He, uh, he's a very good race director. He's in, he, he has a very good eye for stuff like this. He's been around it for a very long time. I think that it's very it's difficult to police that out off the track. It's very similar to any other sport. A referee can do what he can do, just like a race director can do what he can do yeah. during the event. But it's what that kid's learning on the weekends or whenever they're not on the track. Good point. That that are going to it's going to affect how they drive. And I think it's um it's something where you 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 can only get so far pushing people out of the way, and you will learn very quickly that at some point you'll get pushed back because one day you're going to meet somebody on the track that has no problem pushing back on you, and you'll learn that you have to find a way to pass them without making contact. And I think that experience in a legend car where the risk expense-wise is much lower, it is going to be a time when you're going to learn how to use your bumper. And I think some of these kids haven't figured it out yet, and that's totally fine. I can tell you I personally almost never figured it out. But <laughs> it's something that uh, it's something that you learn one way or another, and we're happy to be a part of the learning process. And we thank our race directors all across the country on our local tracks for for trying to teach these kids the right way to go around the track. And we put it to, to the kids to learn about it. And, um, you know, it ends up paying off for them in the long run if they can learn how to race without making as much contact. Yeah, I think one of the one of the things that kind of drives that a little, too, is the fact that these cars, both the Legends and Bandos, are basically spec cars. So, you know, they're all built at, at your location, at U.S. Legends, and, and you can only do so much to them. Most of the parts come directly from you, so there isn't really. It mostly is driver and crew chief and setup. So I think, you know, that the, the cars all run very close together. The speeds aren't that much different in, in, in terms of, say, first to tenth or first to fifteenth, even where you get them all on the track in a feature setting and start twenty four or thirty of them. And you know, that's I think that uh, that kind of breeds. Uh, a little bit more of the rooting and gouging that you see than you know what you see in other classes where there's more of a differential between cars in the field absolutely it's funny we actually had um i believe week one we had our one of our closest finishes in all of all of legend car history on the pro race yes i think it was down to ten thousandth of a second or something like that incredible photo finish i mean a photo finish across the line and that just speaks to the uh the the level these guys are driving these cars at yeah and uh and also like what what the car can can do being a spec car i mean how, how you keep them so close together and uh you know allison johnson was able to pull out the win that on that really close finish and i thought it was really really cool because you it takes a lot of self-discipline to not just put someone to the side when you're when you're that close to the finish line but both drivers did a great job and ended up finishing that close and that's a great example of two people that learned that you can race with and have a great clean race with a perfect finish and that's one where you get out of the car and you go to the driver you just finished next to and you give him a high five because i mean you guys just put on one heck of a show oh for sure and that's a big part of it too obviously is the entertainment and i love uh you know everything about a shootout show with uh kind of the intermission sort of things that go on uh with the announcing crew and yes. all of that stuff i you know i i've announced a bunch of races and i appreciate 
the art of going into the grandstand and entertaining the crowd during intermission, all of that sort of thing. And you guys really um, have have got that down with Postman. And, and I think uh, the young man's name is Bo that does all of the crowd stuff this year. Yes. <laughs> um, just doing a great job of the bus racing as well, although I'm crushed that you didn't have a faster pastor race because I wanted to enter my pastor. I hope that comes back next year. Oh, it's coming! It's later this year. We start oh. off with the uh, with the principals, but we're gonna have the faster faster later this year. So oh, good. Get a call okay. Over to Charlotte Motor Speedway. So Charlotte Motor Speedway runs Summer Shootout. We yeah. we run the Legend Car business, but CMS is responsible for all the fun and games. I have to give them the credit for it. Bo okay. is actually an intern for CMS, so he's there. He's having a blast doing it. And they, those guys, those interns, they crack me up. They're they're a fun group. Oh, they go to lunch together. They hang out together. But they, um, yeah, so call over to CMS and, uh, and, and try and get your pastor in there. See, I was told by somebody race. at CMS there wasn't going to be a pastor race this year. So um, I that's why yeah, we'll, I we'll said have that. One. Okay, cool. Well, we'll have to get back together on that uh, because I'd like to see if I can get my pastor in. He almost won it the last time he was in. Um, so love to have <laughs> him again. So, uh, yeah, he, he led early and the bus stalled on a red flag after another bus flipped. So, uh, <laughs> yes, mechanical issues there. See, um, but yeah, it's just a whole lot of fun. If you're in the Charlotte area, um, make sure you get on a on a Tuesday night uh, over the next uh, seven, eight weeks or so to uh, one of the summer shootout races. And um, I'll, I'll leave you I'll end the interview on this question, Graham. So um, looking from your perspective out at at all of the stuff that is comprises legends car racing all of the tracks is there i mean you're on dirt you're on road courses um and the cars adapt just as well to any of it is there any kind of racing or anything any other type of event that you'd like to see legends cars um be a part of or take in the direction that you haven't gone yet because it feels like to me you got it pretty well covered I definitely am proud of how we have it covered, and I will tell you that there are some international people that have done some experiments with um, with a bit different of an off-road style of driving and more oh. in the form of rally. Oh. And I I grew up a huge fan of Group B. Like I watched all the by the time that I was by the time I was into racing, Group B was already canceled. So I I got to go back and watch the YouTube videos, and I think rally cars are the coolest cars in the world. I think they're awesome. I drove a little uh, like little like the four-wheel drive hatchbacks like yeah. all the time growing up. That was my favorite thing to drive. So I think there is a place for possibility of some rally racing down the line. I'd love to see how we can make it work. That's a lot of development that has to go into that suspension and, um, and making sure the car still fits our affordable mindset uh, for the car. But I, I do think it's something that I'd love to see more of and, uh, and seeing how we have such an awesome dirt market in the U.S. now, especially thanks to some of these cup drivers who come out of that market be really cool to see them make some right turns on dirt and see them go over some jumps and stuff like that i think the car can handle it oh, it's boy. small i mean think about the old lancias that used to beat up on the quattros for that one year when they decided we're going to go rear wheel drive there's definitely a place in this world for a rear wheel drive rally car i think it'd be a lot of fun to see that happen with uh <laughs> with a legend car oh are you gonna start some rumors with this one uh okay. absolutely you guys can rumor all you want but there's a lot of development that has to go into it i'm just giving you you asked what i would like to see it's rally i think it'd be a lot of fun to see some more rally. I, so. well I'm, I'm i'm gonna guess that you will have some folks who oh, actually probably a lot of folks who would be very interested in seeing what that looks like. Okay, so we talked about the price of a brand new Bandolero earlier. What is the current going uh, price for a brand new Turnkey Legends car out of the shop onto the racetrack? And uh, and then talk about how people can uh, kind of reach out to get started or get information. Absolutely. So the Legend car is $18,995 out the door. That, okay. is, uh, that is the full price of the vehicle. Uh, you'll need to buy a seat and some fire safety equipment. Uh, and then you can go racing. You're ready to go after that. So if you want to, if you want to get involved, and if you want to come see it, I highly suggest coming by the shop. It's one thing to look at them online. You're more than welcome to do so at uslegendcars.com. But I would say come over to the shop. Let Kyle and I give you a tour. Walk around the shop, and we'll show you around. Kyle's our sales manager. He's the great person to talk to. We've got Kyle and Jordan at the sales counter. They're both there to to help you build the legend car that you like, and uh, and then you can go out there and race it. But we'd love to have you at the shop. Tell you the stories show you all the cars, show you how they get built. We're an open shop, so come by whenever. 
That sounds great, Graham. Uh, really appreciate your time to talk with us today. I know it's a busy one for you, and we look forward to doing more of this uh, as we go down the road here. And I hope that uh, the rest of the shootout is as wild and crazy as the first two races have been with maybe a few of the less uh, pileups, but more of the great finishes because uh, it certainly started off as a very racy year there at Charlotte. And I know you got Thursday Thunder at Atlanta and a lot of other things going on as well. So um, look forward to keeping in touch with you as we go forward and, um, you know, keeping tabs with what's new. And anytime you've got something that needs to get out there, we would love to have you come and talk with us and we'll uh, make sure we do that that for you thank you so much tom and thank you for the great interview and and, the, and your time today and uh yeah i look forward to seeing you out at the shootout if i uh hopefully i can see you out there perfect that's graham smith the vp of business operations for u.s legends cars here on the tom baker show time for today's hot topic and the hot topic this week i've chosen is in general women in racing but more specifically women in f1 the w series which had been about three years into its run before it was shut down last year with a couple of events left due to lack of funding, has now been permanently shelved. In in its place, F1 has launched what they call the F1 Academy. And this, again, is a women's racing series, about seven races. F2, F3 car uh, teams, teams that provide F2, F3 cars are providing the cars, apparently, for this series. It's still a series for women. Is that any better? Would be the question that you would ask. You look at a driver like Jamie Chadwick, who is a Williams test driver. She won three W Series titles. She's now racing in Indy next. And you ask yourself, what does Jamie Chadwick have to do in order to get a shot in an F1 seat? Why isn't Jamie Chadwick in a top flight F3 or F2 program? What's going on with all of this? Because it isn't as though no women have ever expressed interest in F1. You can go all the way back to 1958 and 59, Maria DiFilippi. She ran three races. She entered, I think, five or six. Leila Lombardi actually got a sixth place finish in an F1 race in Spain in the mid 70s. She competed in 12 races. Davina Gallica in the later 70s. Desiree Wilson in 1980. Giovanna Amadi, also I think around 1980, these are all drivers who are female who have shown great interest in F1. But out of that list that I just named, only two actually have ever competed in a F1 Formula One race. Desiree Wilson won a race at Brands Hatch in 1980, but that was something called British F1 Aurora GP. So I don't know. It must have been some sort of a, you know, feeder series of some kind. But apparently it wasn't a big F1 race. So in that part of the sport, there seems to be an even bigger mountain to climb for female racers than there is in here in the U.S. in NASCAR or IndyCar or even sports cars. But is the pathway the same across the board for a female racer as it is a male? That's the question you got to ask. 
the F1 Academy is being managed by Total Wolf's daughter, who herself was a test driver at one point. There have been others. Tatiana Calderon was a test driver. She's raced some IndyCar races with AJ Foyt. I think she's done some sports car stuff. I mean, it, it, it's certainly if you look at the history of IndyCar, for example, you know, Janet Guthrie, Darlene Hiss, um, you, you, Lynn St. James was a super competitive driver. Um, you, you, you've had all kinds of, of female racers who have been quite successful in IndyCar. I'll never name them all, but you can go look up the history of females in IndyCar and at least they've been able to get rides and be competitive. Um, a lot of them, not necessarily in top equipment, Danica Patrick, the one that stands out, who's kind of had the most opportunity probably in top equipment. She did win a race. Um, she was competitive and she, you know, she came to NASCAR and, and obviously didn't live up to her own expectations, probably let alone everybody else's. But again, she, you know, she, she was there, she competed, she had, and she did have some, some shining moments, but she got there. How do we, what is the missing link here? Do we need, if if you're Jamie Chadwick and you've spent, you've won three championships, but racing in a series against all women, is that the same level of competition? That's a question. It isn't a statement. I'm not leading anywhere. I'm asking, is that the same? Because ultimately, if she's going to be successful in Formula One, she's going to be competing against men. And so the question I would ask is, what is there a difference? Now, I think probably most of you would, off the top of your heads, would say yes. There is definitely a difference. Well, if there's a difference, then why are we creating a series just for women to race instead of looking at what, what the missing links are, the obstacles are, to prepare them to race against men and and implementing those things. Now, if this F1 Academy is going to do that, if it's going to get into strength training, if it's going to teach them about mental focus and, and all of the, the things that you need to understand mentally in order to compete at a high level in the sport, because it really is a mental game. If it's going to teach them how to be marketable, and what to do in terms of, you know, publicity and all of that. How to do all of that right. If it's going to do all that for them and they're going to get some races, that's 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 better than if it's just... Because I felt like the W Series was sort of a, a place for women to employ themselves as racers, but there was never really any pretense that it was ever going to lead anywhere. And that's the, the, the part I think that's missing. There are plenty of, of females who race go-karts. And over here in the U.S., you know, the developmental series from go-karts to legends to quarter midgets to bandoleros to, um, you know, even into late models. Tons. You know, and we've got some drivers that I think, ha that who happen to be female, that I think are legitimately talented racers. Two of them that come to mind right off the top. Katie Hedinger is one. Isabella Robusto is another. Both of them are at the late model level now. I think Katie's run an ARCA race or two. But we, we, we see a number of women in the ARCA series, and some of them are trying to... I mean, we've got women that are, that are in engineering programs, mechanical engineering programs, trying to learn about race cars. We've got women who work on their race cars. So... With that all being said, and, and we've had women in NASCAR, we've had, as I mentioned, plenty of them in IndyCar. Um, IndyCar has probably led the way, in fact. But if Janet Guthrie, as, you know, a grown woman in the 70s, in a part-time effort, can run top 10 in the NASCAR 
Cup Series, before there was power steering, before there were cool suits, before there were there was cold air blowing into the helmets, when the cars were, were far more crude and a real handful to drive, and the men who drove them looked like bricks, not so much today where the men who drive cup now for the most part look like horse jockeys, right? It's the, it's, it's amazing how that's all evolved. But if Janet Guthrie can pull that off, we know that it's possible for a woman to be strong enough physically to handle a race car. And by the way, F1 and IndyCar races are far shorter. They're about half the length of a NASCAR race. And in a NASCAR race, you're in an enclosed car that's much warmer than an open cockpit F1 car that just has sort of a flip-flop looking thing over the top for safety. Um, now, indie cars obviously now have, um, you know, they have the, the, the roof kind of thing, <laughs> an enclosed cockpit, we'll, we'll say, closed driver area. Um, you know, but but again, if if Janet Guthrie can do it, Almost 50 years ago, it can be done. So the question is, how do we get there? I have never been an advocate for special treatment. I don't, I'm not an advocate of, of elevating a female to the top level of anything just to say, oh, look, we have a female racer. Great. What I would like to see, because I know that most of, I believe, Katie Hedinger, I believe Isabella Robusto, I know plenty of other female racers that I have met, and I I haven't known a single one of them who want to be anything but a race car driver. They don't want to be a female race car driver. They want to be a race car driver they can't help that they're female, right? I mean, that's just, that goes with the territory, but they want to be considered equal. They just want to be a racer and they want to be treated like a racer and they want to have the opportunities that any other racer would have. I think that should be the goal. And for that matter, you can apply that mentality to any part of the sport, whether it's driving or a pit crew or administrative positions on a team or engineers in a shop or, you know, media or wherever. Okay. It, 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 and for that matter, you can apply it to any other profession. It should be about whether you're good enough. And if, if we need to, if there are reasons why it's harder for a female to be good enough, let's address those. Do they need a do they need a special kind of strength training, for example? If that's it, I don't know. But if it is, it's certainly I don't look at, you know, Katie or Isabella in a late model and I don't see them falling out of the seat, so I don't really know. But if that's what the issue is, then I mean let's educate them how to get there. And then it's up to them, obviously, to do the work. If it's, you know, if it's marketability, whatever it is, whatever the obstacles are, let's, let's focus on those. I think that we better serve females who want to be racers when we treat them like racers, not like females who race. We better serve them when we open the same opportunities up to them that we would to a male counterpart. And I just think that F1 has lagged way behind. Uh, other parts of the racing world in this particular area. And if the, I know the W series didn't solve the problem and obviously it didn't go over well enough with a big enough group of fans and supporters to, to generate the income that it needed in order to survive as a sort of all women racing series. And I can't believe Jamie Chadwick, that was her goal I want to race against women. She wants to race F1 or she wants to race IndyCar. She, and she just wants to race those series. If there's other women in it, great. If not, she, that's fine. I'll race against the men. These women want to be racers. They don't want to be women racers. Let's stop 
Let's stop thinking like that and start treating him like any other racer. And then if it, and then look at the gaps or the differences in what it may take, just like we would with, you know, any other group of people. NASCAR has got the diversity program. It's worked. It's worked very well for, for males of varying ethnicities. How many women has the diversity program actually put elevated and trained and prepared to be elevated to the NASCAR major series? How many out of all the years they've had the diversity program? How many women? I don't, I can't think of one. Danica certainly is not a product of the diversity program. (laughs) She came from IndyCar. She was already at that level. Okay. So I think we need to focus that way. Treat them like racers, train them like racers, give them the same opportunities, give them the same shot that you would a, a male racer. And I think eventually we'll see more women that will break through these barriers, but I don't think the W series did it. So I'm actually not sad to see that go. I guess I'm sad for the drivers and the, the people who lost jobs because of it, but you know, and I hope this new Academy is, is a different mindset because if it's designed as sort of what an Academy should be, which is a training ground and to, to sort of address all these issues that I've just talked about, it could be a good thing. And maybe it's a thing we need more of around the sport, but you know, I've seen plenty of females who can wrench a car, who can race a car, who can do PR, who can, you know, engineer who can do there's there's it's all out there it's all being done so let's let's open these doors for the for the for the racers who happen to be female but let's equip them with everything they need to be successful and not just sort of put them over here in this place where they're all just competing against each other because i don't think i don't think that addresses the issue that's this week's hot topic and that brings our show to a close. I want to thank each and every one of you who are listening. Please feel free to share this show so we can build the audience a little bit. And look forward to talking to you again next week on the Tom Baker Show. Until then, have a safe racing weekend, everybody. So long. You've been listening to the Tom Baker Show.